The Incomparable Podcast, number 46, June 2011. It's that time on The Incomparable, the podcast that I never thought would happen, mostly because I'm not quite sure that this isn't going to go on for the next five hours, but we're going to give it a shot. We are going to talk, finally, about Star Wars, the original Star Wars, or for gigantic Star Wars nerds like John Syracuse, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. It's not as if we haven't talked about Star Wars on The Incomparable. In fact, I think basically every episode we talk about Star Wars in some way or other, but we're actually going to dive in. We're going to talk about the original movie. And uh, joining me today to discuss it are a group of uh, Star Wars aficionados, I guess we, we could say. The aforementioned John Syracusa is here. Hi, John. Hello, Jason. Dan Morin as well. Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me, Jason. No! It's impossible! No, that's the wrong movie. Scott McNulty. Hello. Hello. And Greg Noss. Hello. Hello, Greg. So, Star Wars, Episode 4, A New Hope. My favorite character is Captain Kirk. (laughs) I like (laughs) Dr. Spock. There's a button we can press to kick people off this podcast, (laughs) right? So Star Wars came out in 1977, and the first thing I wanted to ask everybody here, knowing that, that several of you are, are um, quite a bit younger um, than I am, is uh, how you you first experienced Star Wars before we get into the movie itself and how you heard about it and what your memories are. But I think I should start with the elder statesman of the podcast by like three years. But Greg Noss, um, Greg, where were you? What Tell us your childhood star wars story my uh, my life exists in in two separate dimensions one pre-star wars and one post-star wars it was the transformative experience i i was nine years old when star wars was released and i saw it nine times during its initial theatrical run i was just totally blown away by everything in it it was it was perfect in every way and i still believe that and i will argue with anybody who wants to that it is it remains perfect despite its flaws it is the socratic ideal of what a science fiction movie should be so what you're saying is even its flaws are part of its perfection yes, the, exactly it would it it is perfect because of its flaws all right i was uh, 6 i guess when this movie came out and i think i did see it in the theater um, but I was I was pretty young, and I was a big Star Trek fan, so I was kind of a little offended by how um, how much attention Star Wars got. But in the end, even I broke down and learned to love it. Um, John Syracuse, what about you? So you know when you try to think about uh, things that happened in your childhood, and uh, like your memory stops at a certain point. You know, like usually most people can't remember anything before they could talk. Obviously, well, I have two things that are like that. One of them is skiing. I can't remember ever not knowing how to ski it's not like walking like people don't remember before they could walk right but most people if they learn to ski in their childhood they can remember oh i didn't know how to ski and then i went through a learning process and then i learned to ski i have no memory of not knowing how to ski and the other one is i have no memory of not having seen a new hope so obviously i didn't see it when it came out because i was three uh when they re-released you know i was five and i really doubt my parents took me to see it when i was five but i have no memory of any time in my life when i did not have encyclopedic knowledge of a new hope 
So I'm assuming either my parents took me to see it when I was five, or I saw it on VHS or something. I, I have, or maybe it was rerunning in the movie theater when I was six or seven. I have no idea when I first saw this movie, but I may as well have been born with it inside my head. Wow. Are you going to call it a new hope for, throughout this entire podcast? Well, I used to just call it Star Wars. I definitely would not call it Episode 4 because the word episode has been tainted by things that will not be mentioned on this podcast. Well, let's just agree to call it Star Wars then for now. And, and yeah, it, with the idea that it doesn't refer to any other movie at this point. Yeah, because that was, the, the, that was the, the thing that I called it, you know, until the, the second movie came out. I mean, what everybody called it. And, and the episode thing was tacked on later. And yes. New Hope is just is just good for disambiguation at this point. Because if you just say Star Wars, God knows what people are thinking of. So okay. we're going to limit I, ourselves I, in this as much as possible to just the first movie. So yes. just for all those out there who are wondering, we're not going to talk about who, who Luke's father might be, for example. Yes. I don't know. He's um, dead, Moran. isn't he? Yes, exactly. So, Dan Morin, how about you? Um, what, what's your Star Wars memory? John kind of stole my line, which was saying that, I, I, I mean, I was born in 1980, so uh, I think shortly before uh, Empire came out. And so I, I literally, there, I did not exist in a time when there was no Star Wars. My, my closest cousin, um, Tim, who is, was born in 77, actually can claim to have seen it in utero since his pregnant mother saw it. Um, but I did not have that. However, I, I guess my, my, my memory of it's really tied very closely to a lot of my cousins because I feel like every time they came and visited, um, we would watch some Star Wars movie on VHS. Um, but it's hard for me to pin down kind of with that sort of fuzziness of youth exactly when that was. I do know um, that I went to see uh, Return of the Jedi in the theater. My parents picked me up from preschool, so I must have been – four or five at that point and i i knew what was going on so i must have seen the first two movies prior to that because i was really excited and i really wanted to go see the movie um but yeah it, it, for me there really there really isn't a time there's there's no way that i can remember not having seen star wars scott mcnulty have you seen star wars I I have seen Star Wars for the first time earlier tonight. No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I, I live Pressing in that kick button. <laughs> so I was born in 1977. I was three months old when uh, Star Wars came out. And I remember taking myself to the movie theater and buying... No. My first Star Wars-related memory is doesn't actually involve the movie, but involves my brother's Millennium Falcon. He had the Millennium Falcon toy, which was awesome, uh, and I have a very, very clear memory of the uh, whatever that force orb thing that Luke practices with. The Millennium Falcon had a little one in it, uh, and for some reason, that fascinated me as a child. Uh, and then I think the first Star Wars movie that I saw in the movie theater was Return of the Jedi. Uh, I don't know, and I don't recall ever not knowing about Star Wars. Wow. That's for old people like me and Greg. That's um, that's such a strange idea. The idea that Star Wars was always there. I I have to think that, that it would be a little disappointing having it always around because you didn't get to discover it. It didn't like appear, you know, dawn. But I I, I might argue that that as 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 your idea, Greg, that that Star Wars is a Socratic ideal in some ways. Um, hasn't it always been there? Uh, we just didn't know it. It's been inside of us. <laughs> it was inside the block of marble. It, it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, I never had to. I never discovered Star Trek. It was, I, and I, I have that same feeling about that original Star Trek. Is I have no memory of not knowing about Star Trek and Captain Kirk and Mister Spock. So um, I can, I can relate to that. I, I would argue that that 
I don't want to know what it was like to live in a world, world without, without Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me sad. <laughs> it was a very sad time. I look back on with huge fondness on seeing the movie for the first time. I, m- I remember my little nine-year-old brain was imprinted with how jazzed I was walking out of the theater, you know, convinced that I was Luke Skywalker until I, you know, caught sight of myself in a mirror. Uh, <laughs> sad trombone. And um, <laughs> was that your nickname? Sad trombone. I feel the same way about Hitchhikers when I was homesick one day and my mom brought home a book from a library and it turned out to be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And that (laughs) I thought you were going to say your mom, your mom brought home a hitchhiker. (laughs) (laughs) I've always had a great fondness for the man. That would change my life. It was, it was Rector Howard. Next week on a very special episode of the incomparable. (laughs) (laughs) Men, my mom brought home. (laughs) I got a lot of really fond memories of that. Wow. We have really gone off course quickly here. So, so, but that's, that's, that's good. I mean, I think, I think that's true that you have those moments. They're, they're the things that you sort of swim in. They were always there. And then you have those kind of relatory moments where you're like, uh, oh my God, I can't believe that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a good example. Although the thing about books is you're usually old enough, you know, you're old enough to read and read books that are complex. And so you, those are always moments of discovery where something like a TV show or a movie, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be old at all to, to watch it and start absorbing it. And so, so it happens before that moment where you, you know, have your memories beginning. So it's just always movies and TV are much more likely or music, I suppose, to have always been there. I was, as I was watching star Wars tonight to, you know, prepare for the podcast, uh, I thought to myself, because you know, a lot of kids, the movie is like the perfect kid for um, the perfect movie for kids. It's very exciting, but it begins. You have to read a bunch of stuff, and uh, and I Homework. imagine when it first was in the movie theater, a lot of parents reading to their children what the 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 scrawl says, so that they can understand what's going on. My son, who's just now reading, he he would he would shout at me while we watched Star Wars. Read it, Daddy. Read it. Because he just, I demand to know what it it's is. The only, it's the only movie with subtitles you'll ever get your kids to watch. I, I tried to get um, my daughter into Star Wars a little bit too early, and I tried to explain to her that it was an exciting movie that involved a princess and robots, and she was sorely disappointed. But then she liked it like a year later. But you have to read first. I think there is something to that, you know, not to say there. there is a, you know, it's a very exciting beginning, but there's also, I, I was thinking about the fact that it takes so, you know, so long to get to the arguably the protagonist of the story. It's, it's like, like 15, 15 minutes. Yeah. It's 15 minutes in. And, you know, that's kind of a long time. I think it struck me how this compared to a modern movie um, in the way that it's structured. And, and that I feel like a lot of, I wonder if kids today or people growing up in the era of this, like, cut a second, you know, so, like, speedy, fast-paced uh, films would you know, would be bored sitting there as this unfolds and gradually leads up to it. Because I could see a studio executive today being like, yeah, what's all this stuff out about, uh, you know, at the beginning? Let's just cause cut all thing, everything till we get to Luke Skywalker. I think it's genius by the way they open with a bang because they know there's going to be this downtime of like a guy on the farm and he's got a loser and he's got a boring life. They know that's going to be there. So the, the movie opens with a bang, gigantic spaceship that you have never, the way you've never seen it before in your life, laser battles, big dark guy in black choking people. Like it starts the way you're supposed to start, you know, then it lo- there's a lull and it calms down. But at that point you're like, what the hell was that? Giant triangle ship, dark dude, you know? Even better than that, it, it helps, I think, thematically because it establishes Luke's place in the universe, which is pretty much zero. 
until the story gets going. Yeah, compared to what we just saw. Exactly. That's, and then suddenly you're dealing with this farm boy. And, you know, you can go into the Campbell hoo-ha about, you know, the journey of the hero and all that. But you want Luke to be unimportant at the beginning. You don't even, yeah, you, you, not only that, you don't even know his last name until like halfway through the movie. It's Starkiller, right? <laughs> nice, nice, unassuming name for a farm boy. Yeah, kills stars, whatever. Um, you know, not to go too much into the backstory, but of course, I mean, I believe the earlier, you know, there are several cutscenes involving, um, you know, starting with Luke seeing this battle in space and whatever, and it being more of mm-hmm. a, you know, you start out earlier with him, and I think. This is I agree I agree that I think this is a lot stronger as an opening as a as a structure um than than sort of a more gradual like easing in would be but um you know I was just watching at the end of the uh I just watched the movie as well like Scott and at the end it, it happened to flip over to it was one of the editions that has like an interview with George Lucas afterwards like you know a 10 minute thing um and they were talking about like you know the selling this idea as a movie and like how Alan Ladd at Fox was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> it's just like, that struck me as, as amusing in the, like, I can imagine being a lot to take in if you're not like, you know, a seven year old boy who loves this stuff anyway. And there were no, I mean, there were really no sci-fi movies that the, there would have been 2001. Yeah. And this is really not in the same vein. Sci- at all. Sci-fi blockbuster, summer blockbuster movie, which we take for granted today did not really exist until this movie was released. So it was a tough sell. And I, you know, and as the documentaries say, it was um, kind of touch and go there for a while. Um, one of the things while we're talking about the opening 15 minutes, basically um, based on something that Greg said, um, I think it was Greg. There's so many of you, um, <laughs> the, the spaceship, the Princess Leia spaceship, the it's all like white walls, super clean. And I find that really interesting because after that, you know, super bright, like very future, seems like a very almost 60s kind of idea of a, of a spaceship. And, um, you know, then the next thing we know, we're on Tatooine and it's dirty and crappy and the C-3PO is all beat up and scratched. And and I, I, I was really struck in watching it again by that... Um, by that uh, choice that we start out on this kind of idealic, idealized future, um, you know, spaceship, and we're promptly kind of kicked out of there and sent down on this planet where, you know, with with sand people and stuff. You could you could almost take it as a knock against something like Star Trek or oh, yeah. two thousand one that have that very sterile environment. I love that's one of my favorite things. The thing that that made this universe resonate for me so much more than Star Trek really ever mm-hmm. has is that. It's a universe that feels lived in. It feels used. It's dirty. It's not clean. Look at the Jawa sand crawler. There's crap everywhere. There's wiring that's exposed. It's clearly been cobbled together. I mean, something about that feels like very homey into me. Maybe because I have all these wires lying around on my office floor. And a, and a Jawa. Even on the Tantive Four, like even though we saw the the white walls and everything, it's two seconds when you're away from that scene when Leia's like you know hiding the data tapes and everything. Then she's in like the engine room, you know. It's like it's more now it's dark and it looks like it's more like a working type thing. And, and the escape pod looks like a big mess of you know pipes and tubes. It does not look like a sleek silver capsule, you know. So even though that's like the formal area of that ship and it's color coded white, so you know that they're the good guys, you know, unlike the the bad guy ships which all have black floors and gray ceilings and everything. As soon as you get out off the main hallway, even on the good guy ship, it looks like, you know, a bunch of machinery. And thematically, it, it continues. I mean, the, it, there are the rich people and they're the bad guys and they're the only ones who are clean. 
Uh, their technology is new. Their technology is polished, you know, and everybody else is making do with what they can because the empire has crushed everybody. They've really cornered the market on blinking lights. <laughs> so in those little black boxes with wheels that roll around on their own? Man, I want one of those. When I was a kid, that was that, that was like my favorite thing was the little the little boxes that went around. I was like, I want a robot with wheels that can zip around. MSE and- droids, yeah. And re- rewatching this, I realized how useless most of the droids are. I cannot understand what any of them do. They just walk around aimlessly, and uh, they're lost. They're confused. They, the protocol droid has a clear purpose. In case That's you want true to be for to all you. of your protocol needs. Our two exactly. unit is a is a Swiss Army knife of. I mean, really, why don't they just replace them all with R2 units? <laughs> it seems like those guys are the best. Because then who would translate for them? Because all they speak is beep and boop. Yes, exactly. Right. They just beep at you. Exactly. You'd have to look at your uh, X-Wing screen to understand them. It is It is the only flaw in the R2 design. Would anyone need to talk to these? Eh, just make a beep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, can't, we couldn't actually fit the voice unit into there. It was just so crammed full of, like, welding tools. <laughs> we have to leave a space so someone can cram data tapes in here. Every universe needs its comic relief. And it's uh, a feat British comic relief. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I, I, I've heard people refer to C-3PO as sort of this um, um, effeminate, effeminate gay robot. And I thought, no, he's just English. <laughs> it's a common word. <laughs> the word you're looking for is prissy. Yeah, no, he's just English. He's an English robot. Don't you understand? What would a gay robot involve? I wonder who built C-3PO. Ah, we'll never get the answer well, to no, that. No, he was uh, mass manufactured. Sure. That's there's, logical. There's thousands of others like him all over Why the place. Why would anyone build a protocol droid themselves, like in their garage or something? In fact, when we first see him, there's another one just like him with a slightly different yeah, like, silvery shape silver right one. behind him. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he has the mismatched leg, too. Wow. That's good knowledge. So, so we meet Princess Leia very briefly, and she records the famous hologram that uh, helped me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And we see uh, – that's a nice touch that we see her – um, recording it from afar, C-3PO sees her recording it, and then later we, we get the playback. But, um, you know, Carrie Fisher, um, interesting hairstyle she has. <laughs> I had to bring it up. It's alien. It's, it's it is. Iconic. It's, it is. It looks delicious. <laughs> like, like a cinnamon, cinnamon bun. Rolls, yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's dumb. It's not- <laughs> <laughs> would yeah. you rather she had forehead makeup, Mr. Star Trek? I would, in fact. You know, in, in the 70s, I could think of worse hairstyles to have in, in, in a movie made in the late 70s. Exactly. The, it could have been like screen. Farrah Fawcett feathered, you know? Saturn V. would have been weird. Do you, do you, when you watch this movie, do you get any sense of, um, uh, you know, the 70s encroaching in, or does it feel a little uh, more timeless than that? Almost none. Like, maybe Luke's hair, but almost none of the 70s is anywhere. I'd argue this. that the, the filmmaking of it feels like the 70s to me. Um, I mean, I guess there's lots of parts of it that feel, that feel like a throwback to earlier times, the, you know, the, the wipes and stuff like that that Lucas uses that are clearly evoking, you know, the serials from, like, the 30s. But... Uh, there's a couple – it's just struck me you know, early on that there's a couple things in there that are a little – feel a little off kilter. For um, for example, the scene where R2 is working his way through the canyon, we get a couple POV shots from the Jawa's point of view. And they're very unsteady, like, you know, like they're a film like with a handheld or something like that. And that to me almost seems like – it seems a little rough and a little edgier, something that might be more like the 70s. I feel like camera angles these days are very – often very – 
you know, cut and dried in terms of what they attempt to do. But, well, but isn't, isn't that invoking the fact that you're uh, a being looking at him rather than oh, just... Abs- a- absolutely. I just don't think that, I don't think that modern filmmaking would do that. I feel like that was something that, I mean, Lucas, you know, obviously he was a film student. He was exposed to a lot of these other, you know, sort of avant-garde stuff and, and stuff that was going on in the seventies. I just feel, I mean, I'm not criticizing it. I think, I think it's good. You I just, better not be. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I just think I just think it's it's sort of indicative of it as a as a seventies film in the way that the films were made. I, I, it doesn't feel like the seventies at all to me. I mean, it, I, I realize I'm totally over the hedge on this, but it feels just as modern today. It could be released today with some of the hairstyle exceptions, and everything would look and some of the special effects. Um, I'm glad they go, but don't ever go back and correct that. Yes, though. that's good. Um, but it, it, everything about it feels totally timeless when you, it, especially when compared to even like THX, which feels really, really seventies to me. You've actually seen THX. Yes. Wow. Haven't you? No. Why would I? It sounds terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding out for, um, the sequel. THX 1139. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen the first eleven hundred and thirty-seven of them, so gotta start with THX one. Um, so when we're on Tatooine, moving ahead, sort of chronologically here, talking about the Jawas and they're spying our our little droid friends, and and uh, and then we meet Luke Skywalker, our hero, along with his aunt and uncle Owen and Baru. That's fifteen minutes in. We have uh, some barbecue. Inter- an interesting an interesting setting. Um, and the thing that I remember most, actually, from when I was a kid, is that scene of Luke watching the two sons set over Tatooine. I, I that was burned into my brain when I was six years old when I watched that movie more than anything else. Just so so striking a scene to make you realize what you were watching that they were on an alien planet. Yeah, I got a note about that. Is that like I know they do location shooting for modern movies, and it's the. But when they show that scene there, like you could tell that they're they're in Tunisia and the sun is actually setting, right? And I feel like today, if they were doing that scene, either it would be you know like in Vancouver or L.A. or something, or they would just do it on blue screen and have like they do the the sky and the suns with CG because it's like more dramatic and they can draw whatever they want. But for this scene, they had to get Luke out there during sunset in Tunisia and have him stand there and shoot him, and it was a little bit windy, and it just. It works so much better than I can imagine yeah, that scene so much working better if it was film it. if yeah. it was filmed with modern techniques. And I know for the movies that we won't mention, they were actually in Tunisia for them too, but it's just something about modern filmmaking where they don't wanna they don't wanna take the time to get that shot, or they would be annoyed at that shot because it was too much wind and Luke's hair was going in his face or something. That you know Or if they did feels... it CGI they'd overdo it. Yeah, yeah or they I mean, you know, yeah. they do the C G suns where here they just took two suns and overlaid them optically. And both of them look like the sun, and it's not, you know, there's not lens flares, and there's not rings around the suns with a meteor shooting through the corner. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they'd I have, think, they'd I have think a big, t- you know, moon up there with a ring around it kind of hanging in the corner just to say, well, cool. I, I think that touches upon something that makes this such a great film. And again, you know, part of this was constraints breed creativity. You know, they only had a certain number of techniques to work with, and they were busy inventing, like, pretty much every sort of technique mm-hmm. they could think of. But... Everything in this film seems much more real to me than almost any other film I feel like I've seen. And it's just because, you know, some of those things are – they're real. You can tell that it's a tangible object. Even if the sand crawler is like a scale model, 
it's a real thing, right? It's an object. There were artists working on it, painting these little details, you know, and it feels real as a, as a result of that in a way that that as advanced as it's gotten, you know, computer graphics never feel – they always seem alien to me. They always seem just a little bit out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's just the way the light hits it or something, you know, I think that there's just something that hasn't been – they haven't been able to duplicate. And so – the thing that strikes me, you know, and in, in the way that I think Greg was saying that this is sort of timeless, is that it doesn't. It's amazing to me how dated it does not feel, given you know, given its age. And I think it, a lot of that can be chalked up to the fact that these emphasis on these these real effects, things like optical effects or model building or stuff like the costuming, all that stuff. Some of the matte paintings weren't great though, like most Eisley Spaceport. And now, now when I see matte paintings nowadays, it takes a really good matte painting to not make me go, oh, look, there's a matte painting. Because, I mean, I know they just use it for backgrounds, but this is one of the things on, on watching this in the modern era, especially if you're watching the one that wasn't even cleaned up. The original run of this had effects that now we looked at, we like, we'd be like, geez, guys, I mean, forget about the matte lines. I mean, the matte lines were just really bad. But, but even just stuff like the, the uh, you know, the paintings on glass. They look fine, but they look like paintings on glass, and I, I would never trade them for. I mean, there, there's definitely there are definitely rough edges. I mean, the one that always strikes me going back and watching Star Wars as opposed to Empire and Jedi is um, Vader is somewhat is a little bit less imposing to me in this one, and a couple that's a combination of a couple effects. One, you can kind of see through the eyes and the mask, yeah, which yeah. I feels like you lose something, and two, they don't do nearly as good a job. Um, either with James Earl Jones's voice or syncing it up with what the what David Prowse is yeah. doing, <laughs> the audio looping in general is not great. Uh, the the thing I always notice in Darth Vader, especially early on, is I get he the, speaks really fast. Uh, he speaks really fast. Like they yeah. they mistimed it or they changed the dialogue, and then they gave it to James Earl Jones, and he says, "Really, I I need to read all of this right there." And so you know, it's, take her away. T- take her oh uh to a part of the rebel lines in the chamber take her away that's <laughs> yes. a run on sentence yeah it doesn't it doesn't Darth make any baby. sense there'll be no one to stop us this time he's got a boss too i think the other thing is he's got a boss right tarkin tarkin is in charge of darth vader which you know later darth vader is the guy right there's the emperor and there's darth vader but in this it's like peter cushing is like vader enough like really? Well, there's a plot reason for that, you know. Yes, I know, but still, it's it's all those people go away in the second movie. He's got a he's got a boss, though. It's just it's yeah. he's a lot less imposing when there's like a general who's in charge of him. I think that works better. Well, I mean, it's it, it's a progression for for Vader as well. I mean, Vader gets in his own ship and flies. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't see him sink in that level in later movies, but this is what happens when all your bosses explode. He's got a chauffeur in later movies. He's supposed to send Commander Riker to do all that stuff, right? <laughs> So can we can we get a shout out for Peter Cushing, who I think is one of the one of the two performances in this that I think really really yeah, elevates he's, he's it. Great. Which him and Alec Guinness are oh, yeah. just they just bring a class to this, like because I they're, was going to say such... Kenny Baker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny's great. Don't get me wrong. Kenny uh, Baker I mean, and the guy who plays Wedge, um, Dennis Lawson, Ewan McGregor's Loser. uncle, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, anyways, but I was going to say both Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness are so – they're such professionals. You know, mm-hmm. you can tell – and like Guinness famously did not really like making Star Wars. But you can't tell that from his performance because he's such a professional. He's like, you know, I don't understand what the hell is going on here. I don't know what the lines are. They sound like ridiculous. But you know what? I'm going to – this. I was paid to do this. This is my job. I'm going to do the best damn job that I can. He does not sleepwalk through this. He delivers a fantastic performance. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan, 
Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. I think my uncle knows him. He said he was dead. Oh, he's not dead. Not yet. You know him. Well, of course I know him. He's me. I haven't gone by the name of Obi-Wan since all before you were born. Pushing likewise, who is no, you know, stranger to schlocky, uh, you know, horror movies and science fiction <laughs> movies, um, but also is just great and like menacing and and you know, again, you can't. I don't think you can poke a hole in either of those performances. Well, it helps that they're playing next to amateurs. It makes them look even better, right? Because at this point, Carrie Fisher really doesn't know what she's doing. Her accent comes and goes, and she changes her mind from scene to scene. And Luke, you know, I mean, he's not bad, but he's not their caliber. These are two young actors who are playing opposite these guys who could who could do this in their sleep and and don't, you know. So by comparison, they, they stand out in this movie. Uh, Princess Lear, before your execution... I would like you to be my guest at a ceremony that will make this battle station operational. No star system will dare oppose the Emperor now. The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Not after we demonstrate the power of this station. In a way, you have determined the choice of the planet that will be destroyed first. Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base... I have chosen to test this station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. No! Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't You will prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. All that said, I will I will defend to the death that Alec Guinness, you know, just a fantastic actor no matter what you put him in. Oh yeah, yeah. No, this and it is a it is a good performance from him. And there are in watching it back, there are a few moments where I, I could sort of sense that He's like, really? This is the, the okay. I'll just, I'll just say it. But in general, it's a great performance. And I know that Alec Guinness later, you know, at the end of his life, was really tired of talking about Star Wars and didn't feel like it was, you know, really worth talking about compared to some of the other things that he did. But he certainly brought credibility to this movie in a way that, um, you know, if the if he and Cushing weren't in it, I think you're right, Dan. Um, you know, he just adds a lot of weight. He adds a lot of gravitas to the to the movie, and you have to take it more seriously than you might um, otherwise take it. Yeah, otherwise it would be just a bunch of kids. Yeah, I mean, like he was so good. He was one of the things that like intri- you know intrigued me to go watch him in other things. You know, uh, that's not necessarily the case for Mark Hamill. That didn't happen with Mark. You yeah. did see Corvette I mean, Summer. Did, uh, Corvette Summer is a great movie, but hey, <laughs> <laughs> I have I have some uh, incomparable trivia related to Alec Guinness. When I bought the domain, um, the original intent was going to be for a little web game um, originally called The Incomparable Sean Bean. And you would, search, <laughs> you would search Google for actors' names that had been labeled incomparable. And whoever got the highest um, would win that particular round. And we'd keep a running list of the incomparable whomever. And Alec Guinness had the highest rating of anybody we could find when we were doing the That the is testing. because it is impossible to compare him. Yes. So the the reason the reason that this uh, that we have the domain the incomparable is is in part because of Alec Guinness because he is the definition of incomparable. Han Solo, I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie here tells me you're looking for passage to the Alderaan system. Yes, indeed. If it's a fast ship. Fast ship. You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? 
Should I have? It's a ship that made the castle run in less than 12 parsecs. So people complain a lot about the uh, the, the 12 parsecs thing. <laughs> I always, the one, and there are plenty of, you know, later explanations, which I won't go into because I'm, I'm a huge nerd. Um, but my favorite, you know, simple explanation is I just always took that scene as, as, as Han trying to snow him a bit. Um, and if you watch Guinness, his expression after he says that is just this perfect, like, he narrows his eyes, he looks at him, gives him this look like, uh-huh, yeah, whatever. And I just, I always love that little, it's a little moment, and it's a little moment that makes you think, like, huh, maybe maybe Solo's just trying to, like, screw with him a bit to see how much they actually know, like, whether they, they he can take him for a ride or whatever. And, and you know, Obi-Wan's being like, nah, I know what you're talking about. He confirms that right afterwards by yes. going, these guys must really be desperate. Right, that's I, a, I'm that's, snowing them over there. I think that's one of my favorite things in the entire movie is that when they leave and Han, now we're left with Han Solo, we don't follow them. We stay with Han Solo. And he's like, wow, those guys are totally desperate. And you realize this guy is a rogue. And um, that felt very modern to me also. Um, that's that's the kind of scene where you know we're not just dealing with the text. The, the subtext is there. It, you know, they, They're making it clear to the audience that this guy is a is a kind of a con man or a scoundrel. 17,000. Those guys must really be desperate. This can really save my neck. Get back to the ship. Get it ready. You know, because he when we meet Han Solo, he's like, "Ooh, it's a is he a smuggler? We you, he's you know, it's, we've already seen several people be dismembered in this bar. Who knows what will be next?" And that shows him as a vulnerable person too, because I mean, he has he he's all bluster and confidence when he's talking to them, and of course he's got the whole thing with Greedo. But when he's just talking to Chewie, he's just you know he's like me and you. He's he's got concerns and worries. Yeah, he's desperate, right? And, and that's basically I mean, in later movies they'll develop his character more in that regard. But if he was just a cowboy, if he was just oh, I'm Han Solo and I'm a big macho guy, that's not his character at all. It's it's the two halves, and even in the very first movie in his very first scenes, they establish that. You can tell a nerd because if they come out of Star Wars complaining that a parsec is a is a measure of distance and not a measure of time, it's like they came out of the uh, Star Trek reboot saying a giant red reptile wouldn't evolve on an ice planet. That, if they planet. come out with that complaint of the first thing on their lips, then then you know you are among profound and and deep nerds. And if they're super nerds. They will tell you that it's because the castle system has full of black holes and therefore you try to chart the, sh- the shortest route through it. <laughs> oh, yes, that's, that's retcon. Or it could be an asteroid <laughs> field that you have to chart the shortest distance through. There's many, many explanations that involve rationalizing. I just like I, like, I like the con man angle. When in reality, it's just that George Lucas doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> just, just I always I stick with the con man angle. That's my favorite. The uh, spice binds of Kessel, right? Yeah. Yes. There, there are two the Kessel references in the movie. Yeah. I hope they have sandworms on Kessel. That would be good. They've got interstellar flight, but the biggest uh, commodity for trade is still spices, just like it was on Earth in the 15th century. Yes, or in Dune, I'm telling you. Yeah, special spice. It was a different kind of spice. She was the one that didn't get to be in the group anymore. (laughs) Scary spice, yeah. I realize I missed the Next Generation podcast, but my favorite piece about about Tasha Yar's backstory was that her, like, planet was known for its rape gangs. Yes, that, that 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 was their major export was rape gangs. Yeah, <laughs> the entire planet. Who's economy. importing that? They were yeah. really <laughs> Who, who's buying it? There was a severe trade deficit going on <laughs> on Tashiar's planet. So we talk about about Han Solo. Um, you know the this is where we have the classic um, cantina scene. The 
know, that was that was so... I remember when I was young, I remember there being a buzz about that scene amongst the adults or, like, the media or whatever, that the cantina scene was, like, the, the you know, the highlight of this movie. I guess it's because, you know, the adults were like, wow, look at all these crazy aliens. But yeah. I don't... I don't remember being that impressed with it as a child, and it certainly hasn't grown in stature. It's a bunch of guys with masks on, and I mean, it, it works fine in the movie; does what it's supposed to do. But it was not—it was not a special effects tour de force. It was not particularly, you know, important to the plot that there were aliens there. That's just the setting for scenes between the characters. As a as a small child, I will tell you what impressed me most about that scene: uh, the bloody arm on the. Oh floor. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the action happening. Yeah. It was also a goldmine for licensing. Well, yeah, I, I think yeah. I had a hammerhead, and that, of course, what, as we all know, that keep that kept George Lucas in business. That's the wrong arm on the floor, though, of course. And of course, a, a lightsaber <laughs> would probably cauterize a wound. Oh, nerdiness! <laughs> I don't know. The Mythbusters has to do that because I think the it would not cauterize it because it wouldn't spend enough time in contact with the parts that it has to cauterize. It doesn't his hand isn't bleeding in like a later movie when things happen. <laughs> the sleeve was covering it. He also swings the lightsaber much faster in the cantina. It, than it's, later. it's alien blood. Whatever. Let's also, go. Also, they it. cut off the arm of the guy who speaks the who doesn't speak the language and not his friend who says we are wanted men incidentally that is the best skit in the robot chicken star wars it is if anybody's <laughs> yeah. seen that it the is bit about what the two of them are actually doing at the bar gee panda i just don't see how you can keep designing with no drawing arm <laughs> i'm sorry but we have to let you go and i recommend highly both of those robot chicken star wars episodes There's although it does it does is there a third yes oh, oh man okay well i'm gonna go internet. download that um that it has yeah. completely changed how I view Star Wars now because honestly I can't watch the scene where we're wanted men and the guy gets his arm cut off without thinking of the poor architect who's just drawing with his left. <laughs> I can still draw with my left hand. I just I can't not think of, and I can't think of the little mouse that's driving the little black robot box on the floor and gets scared when Chewbacca yells at him. I can't stop thinking of all the jokes because those are made by people who've seen the movie. You know, fifty or a hundred times, just like all of us, except Scott. And I'm sure you guys do as as you know as I do. Like I had, you know, my my good friend Evan, who I was like Star Wars fanatics with me, and we would watch these movies like week in week out, and used to do Star Wars trivia on AOL. That that'll date us. Um, but like nobody else would. <laughs> um, and it was just you know, of course, you develop. You see it so many times. You develop all these little in jokes and you know lines about about the ridiculous things going on in these movies and the backstories of these tiny little characters. It's all. I mean, the funny thing about this movie and most of these movies, especially this movie though, um, other than the cantina scene, are there any aliens anywhere else? It's well, all chewy. They're, they're all aliens, Jason. None of them are from Earth. Yeah. I know. Okay. <laughs> A long time ago, <laughs> but, but I'm just, I'm just saying I mean, they kind of blew their whole costuming budget on that one scene. Yeah, I mean, there's the Jawas early on, and and Chewie. But, but there's of course, very little. And, it's midgets uh, and, and beyond, humans. But beyond that, that's, yeah, that's what you not get. as much. And guys in masks, but only in yep. the bar. I believe the Federation is a Homo sapien club. There's also. Oh, um, I'm, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong. Movie. Also, they walk into the bar and they get we get instant racism, right? <laughs> serve your kind. <laughs> your kind aren't welcome here. I, I like that they have a robot detector. Yeah, but why would droids go to bars? I don't even understand. For oil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like Bender on Futurama. They're powered yeah, by they, alcohol. 
they have to they have to you know hold their master's drinks for them. Uh, Also, we learned that the correct way to um, order a drink at a bar is to reach out to the bartender and pull his (laughs) sleeve. That's right. That's what I try to do. Actually, one of the things I noticed this time because I was watching my laserdisc version, I had the volume turned up a lot lower. He does mumble like, "Can I have one of those?" But it's really quiet. Hey, Mister. Well, I like that because he's it's the first time he's been in a bar. He doesn't know what the protocol is. He could have ordered blue milk. If he had his protocol <laughs> droid with him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so he would have known. Damn it! That's... Just when he would have been useful. It's so sad. And then oh so then at the end of the scene, Han Solo is confronted dun, dun, dun. by Greedo. I wonder what Greedo was like as a kid. Anyway, um <laughs> so so we can't talk about it now, uh, other than to say that uh, one of the things we learn about Han Solo is that um, in, di- in addition to being a rogue and kind of desperate, he is willing, when threatened by Greedo, to shoot Greedo before Greedo shoots him, right? Well, that was this cowboy cool western kind of scene. You exactly. Know, it's, it's a showdown. He, un- he un- like unbuttons his, his holster, in fact, under the table. It's such it's a the only behavior scene. that makes sense. And it shows that he's not tied to an honor system where he's he's not like a white knight. He's not going to say, I will now honorably duel you. No, he will shoot you under the table. Yes. Yeah. Although he will pay for the mess. <laughs> yes. Then then um, uh, Han returns to the, the Millennium Falcon, and uh, I believe there was a, a scene there that got cut out. So that's, there, there was a scene there where they were going to put in Job of the Hut, but they decided not to, and so we—I'm sure that scene was mostly it, redundant it had a big anyway. Fat Irish guy playing. Him. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it was you mostly didn't need redundant. That scene. Sydney I, Greenstreet you know, as Job of the Hut. Speaking of cutting out scenes, I wanted to get to this before when we were talking about the '70s influence. One part where I see the '70s is in the in, not the fact that we're on uh, on you know the, this planet with this farm boy for a while, but the pacing of that section is very '70s. '70s, they were not in a hurry. So no. it seems like you spend a really long time just kind of wandering through. He's a farm boy. He's going into town. He's meeting Obi-Wan. There's a side thing with the Jawas. It just takes its time. Like, they're not in a hurry. And that's very much like a lot of 70s movies where they were, like, action-packed when you saw them. But if you go back and watch them, like, go back and watch Mean Streets or something, you're like, boy, they, you know, they were not in a hurry to get to the next scene, were they? Right. Well, that's the whole generation of directors. I, th- I yeah, think the pacing yeah. is very, very, very fast at other points, though. That, that's one of the things struck me watching it. Oh, it, yeah, it picks up. It picks up to, by the end of the movie. Almost it's got ridiculously you in a fast. Yeah. Well, that's um, amazing having a movie that's not going 90 miles an hour from the opening scene. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, well, that's, that's what people like about these 70s movies, you know, that, that, that style of pacing. That's what I'm saying. It reminds me of the 70s that they, that right. you know, movies back then just, they, it wasn't like this was a leisurely pace. This was par for the course, you know. And if anything, mm. this movie was uh, different in that it cranked up the speed at the end and sort of, you know, you could say brought on the whole idea of like, look, if we crank up the speed and intensity, you know, people like that. So let's just do a whole movie like that. And that, of course, doesn't work. But uh, that that was sort of the outcome of this. Uh, it, it helps the structure a little bit, I think, that this is in many ways, you know, it is act one of a story <laughs> and it kind of doesn't have an end. And we'll get to the ending. But um, that that is working for it in some ways too. That it's got to lay out the world and introduce all the characters, and then the action starts. But I mean, we're we're about to get um, as we walk through the plot here, get on the Millennium Falcon for the first time. You know, and we're we've been talking for quite a while now, but there's a lot that happens, and, and it, it does take its time to to get there before we get on the on the ship. And and uh, you know, I'm 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 I might lobby for. Uh, 
I was thinking about this earlier. You mentioned something about favorite characters, and I feel like it's hard to it's hard to pick favorite character. But I might actually lobby for the Millennium Falcon as my favorite character. Nerd. Wow. Come on, who did not want a Millennium Falcon? I wanted an X-wing. But it's only characterized through Han, though, because if Han wasn't on it, it's not as if the thing has a computer voice like Kit, or you know, it's it's a character (laughs) entirely as a foil for Han. That's what I want to see. I want to see Billy D. Williams and My the voice call. of William Daniel- Daniels in Night Falcon. That's what I want to see. <laughs> I, would, I, I would watch that show. Lando. It does have turbo boost, though. They're coming after us, I mean, Lando. I, I, I think I, my other, I mean, you know, the argument I make, and I think this is a larger point, was um, I think there's something really impressive about the number of characters that don't talk intelligibly in this movie and yet how much those characters convey and in particular i mean r2 obviously but also chewbacca who i think is a is a he is legitimately i think one of my favorite characters regardless of the fact that he does not speak any intelligible words in three movies um and that's because you still get an idea of who he is you know you still get an idea of his character um Later on, you know, you see him being like, you know, despite the fact being this big, tough looking guy and he's very scary at times, he still freaks out at the thing in the garbage compactor, right? Like, you know, I think there's there's enough going on there that I, I, I really like him as well, a character. And he doesn't get subtitled just like R2-D2 doesn't get subtitled, which is an interesting choice. Which is a choice. brave move. I mean, like, that's – that. I think like you would have a hard time selling that today. <laughs> Well, that's how you get them to say things that you couldn't say in a PG-rated movie because you know what they're, you can imagine what they're saying based on the people's reaction to them, and basically, you know, both of them are free to say horrible things and essentially curse without having to actually do so. I don't think R two D two would curse. Oh yeah, that, that's what that really low sound is. Trust me, that's <laughs> cursing. So that let's we, we're up to the we're up to the mass murder now. <laughs> Basketball is a peaceful planet. <laughs> We have no weapons. Seriously, no, no weapons. No weapons yeah, on the whole planet. There's no. there's one. It's locked in a box. I didn't. We we use butter knives to cut our meat. That's right. The um. So Alderon, I don't know if anybody has anything to say here. I think this is one of those interesting, interesting parts of the movie where where um, we get a little demonstration of the Death Star and and they decide, hey, we'll blow up a planet. There's a there's a great um, piece out there on the internet on a blog called Overthinking It where they talk about the economy of of the empire i believe and they yes. talk about i think it's on, i think it's on overthinking it and they talk about yes, it is. how much how much economic impact you'd have on the empire if you destroy presumably what's a fairly high level industrial planet and whether it was cost effective to destroy alderaan entirely i mean they destroyed the planet that that's major export was peace and thus descended into civil war <laughs> but they kept the rape gang planet. Yeah, that overthinking it thing uh, didn't just overthink it but i mean it overplayed the opposing view because as the overthinking it piece eventually got to it's 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 terrorism it's just it's an example of it cementing your power through fear and the economic impact of it pales compared i mean to they the, say yeah. that yeah here yeah. we'll keep the systems in line yeah right exactly but it's the, the, like it's, they don't want to have i thought the piece was really funny and trying to trying to put it in, yeah. a, in a context but it's absolutely it is is we don't need the senate really we just need them to realize that if they ever oppose us we will just blow up their planet Although it, that scene is also notable for the the appearance and disappearance of Leia's inexplicable accent, her English it, it becomes yes. English. It's, it's I really and yes. it's English very early on, and I totally you know what I think that totally escaped me on almost every other prior viewing. But this time, for some reason, when she first comes in on the you know the first scene with her uh, and dialogue, I was like, 
Is she using a British accent? And she's, then, it's like Madonna's British accent. It's not a real British she's accent. She's speaking the ambassadorial. Yeah, she, she's, she's a princess. The, she's speaking in the vernacular of diplomacy, you know, using a particular <laughs> accent. And then that goes away when she becomes a rebel. Can you explain the French accent? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. She's I am surprised to find you holding this. Never underestimate the podcast that Dan can work in his French accent. My proudest moment as a father is related to the destruction of Alderaan. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> my, uh, my eldest son, uh, upon seeing the movie a few times, but he says, hey, when they blew up Alderaan, wouldn't she become queen? <laughs> and I had never considered that. Of my what? favorite queen of my the favorite pile? bit is that uh, is that if I don't know if anybody else has listened to these Star Wars radio dramas, which are actually quite good, um, but there's there's that that infamous line, of course, where where Luke tries to convince Han to go after the princess and says she's rich, and in the in the radio <laughs> drama they actually point out, well, she was rich on Alderaan, but it's not there anymore. Our money <laughs> is all in the a money? Swiss account. They don't yeah, keep the money on the planet. The Galactic Bank in Galactic yeah, uh, Credits. On the, on the planet that's the, the capital city uh, or capital planet of the Empire, whatever its name is, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. Imperial Center. Something like that. But but still, I mean, it's quite a shocking thing. And this is the this is the point where you realize, you know, why the Death Star is here. And they, they blow up an entire planet. That's quite, it's kind of bold. These Empire guys are not messing around. That's right. They don't kid around. And, and it's good for for a kid's movie. Where uh, she gives in to the threats, like we're gonna blow up your planet, but you gotta tell us. She tells them, and when you're a kid, you're like, "Oh, she told them to save her planet," and they immediately blow it up, which is not a complicated. Yeah, that it, that it, it turns out time, she was lying, and she she does, she lies. <laughs> That's what happens when you lie, kids. But to a little kid, that was fairly shocking. Your planet blows up. All know. Blows up. Torture does not produce accurate information. <laughs> Enhanced interrogation. <laughs> the um, the sound design. Yeah. Uh, when they're cranking up the Death Star. I remember it just it just rattled me in my seat. The low hum as they, uh, I don't know, bounce the beam around inside, <laughs> whatever they're yep. doing when it when it starts cranking up. They were commencing primary it, ignition. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Can we, yeah, can we? In general, though, the sound design is fantastic. I mean, I think you know Ben Burt seriously deserves a shout out for all the work that's done here. Yeah, because it's mm-hmm. it, that is some of the you know it's just phenomenal the the stuff that he comes up with the stuff that like. It's always fascinating if you ever watch any of the behind the scenes stuff to see how he came up with all these sounds from these like ordinary objects that exist in our world and then taking them and distorting them and combining them into something that's unrecognizable yet at the same time fits perfectly. Like Chewie, you know, it seems like his voice seems right for him. The blasters sound like right from what we would, you know, think of as blasters, the lightsabers, you know, it all just seems to fit with you know, the objects they're portraying. And yet these are sounds that are, you know, totally unrecognizable, you know, from our reality. And it's not just like the, the, the sounds that they pick. It's, it's the fact that they decided that certain things needed sound at all. That is the big thing with the soundscape of this movie, not the music, but the soundscape is that, you know, when it comes time to say, okay, we're going to have people shooting a gun, obviously, you know, that has to make a sound. And, and even like the, the Death Star has to make a sound, but they had sounds in places where other movies didn't have any sound at ever whatsoever. And the biggest one I see is that, Whenever there's a piece of machinery on the screen, they have a sound of that machinery in operation. And the sound is different from the person inside the machinery to the person outside. So there's, for example, the X-Wing. When you're inside the X-Wing, there's this constant background high-pitch hum. 
And they're saying that's the sound of the X-Wing running. And, of course, when you're outside it in space where there's no sound, whatever, there's a different sound each of the Nerds. ships make. But machinery in this universe makes noise when it's running, just like your lawnmower would make noise when it's running. It doesn't sound like your lawnmower, but, the, but if any machinery is running, there is a constant background noise. And that adds tremendously to, like, even when you're a little kid, you know, when you're in a car, the car makes noise. So when he's in his X-Wing, you can hear the X-Wing running. You, the sound of the machine is there. It really makes everything feel much more real. Sound of turning tractor beams off. Like it being dirty as well. Yeah. Just like yeah. visually, all the machines are dirty. Because they're uh, used. You know, yeah, exactly. It's a it's a lived in universe. Um, when I was, jeez, uh, I must have been ten, just a few years after, I made the discovery that if you take two AA batteries, hold them loosely at the base, and bang them together, they sound just a little like lightsabers. And and so I spent forty, fifty, sixty hours doing that. So on, on the Millennium Falcon, they they um, is when we get our first introduction into the Force, and then it's a mystical, magical, wonderful thing. Uh, that is everywhere all around us, and Luke and puts totally on a blast helmet. To Te- technically, we got that before they left, but hey, <laughs> did we? Did we learn? Oh well, there's some of that. Well, I, I'm thinking. Obi-Wan, ben Ben breaks him in, and when he's at his house. when he's at Ben's house, Ben's yeah. pad. The Force is a mystical, and he and he lies to him too about maybe uh, about uh, maybe well maybe yeah. about his father in theory, certain point of view. <laughs> Thank you, John. Um, I'm thinking of of uh, Luke's. Uh, fir- first, we get the 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 chess with the Ray Harryhausen stop motion animation animated uh, chess guys, right? Let the mm-hmm. Wookiee like win. Adds one of my a little favorite, bit of flavor. One of my favorite that, things. Let the Wookiee that win. That whole ex- that whole exchange is great. Droids don't pull people's arms out of their side. Did they reverse the film there? In terms know. of you know the perspectives. Well, no, when they were t- when Chewbacca is taking his arms down from behind his head. They just seem to fall awfully fast. Mm. Mm. I don't know. In the 70s, they had, they had trouble with film speed. They were still cranking it by hand, I think. <laughs> well, that's, you talk about the, the, some of the places where the special effects look just off. And like the Millennium Falcon leaving Mos Eisley always looked like a really bad mat to me, even when I was young. And Chewbacca taking his hands down from behind his head looks artificial. Huh. I never noticed that when the sand people uh, thrust their little spears up and down that... I, I never realized that that's just like a half a second of film played forward and backward a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. The, I had no idea. Do that I, in, I in, the, that. in the ending huh. scene with the with the uh, space battle, there's a couple of clips that get reused in there too. But it's I would still say they yeah. re- they reuse fewer clips than a much later movie, like for example, Top Gun, which reuses air combat footage like crazy to an annoying degree. That's what you found annoying about Top Gun. Forgive them something; they had a limited budget. <laughs> Yep. That, yeah, and then the MIGs were training. <laughs> but fighters. the homoerotic subtext is perfect. That was the best part Spot of the Spot on. <laughs> and Danger Zone. I mean, what a song. Oh, Kenny Loggins, wherefore art thou? Wow, if only Kenny Loggins had been involved in... And now, the Top, Gun, the Top Gun episode of The Incomparable. Yeah, inside of the Star Wars episode. We, we, we finally got into what we wanted to talk about for real, which is Top Gun. It's, you know, Star Wars is really a riddle wrapped in a mystery wrapped inside Top Gun. So the other thing that happens on the on the Millennium Falcon is um, is Luke wears a helmet with the blast shield down and gets shot in the butt by a laser from a floating ball thing with spikes on it. As you do, I would like to know what the practical use of that blast shield is, because seriously, if <laughs> Be you know blast from blasts, coming, and you it's have true. a time to put put a completely opaque piece of metal over the front of for, your face, it's, I don't know. It's for Seems welding. Jeez, it's for well. It's a completely opaque. 
when you don't need to see what you're welding. And, and why did he have that thing? It depends yeah. on how uh, bright the blast is. The... I think if you put the word blast in front of everything, anything, it can make it sound futuristic. It's just like blast doors, where the guy's, blast the guy's writing it and saying, what's that thing he's got in front of his case? I don't know. Let's call it a blast shield. That was my George Lucas impression. Floating uh, spiky blast ball. You need a blast shield in case you get hit by a turbo laser. Well, I think the key, the key part of the scene <laughs> on the Millennium Falcon, other than, once again, uh, having the sound of the inside of the Millennium Falcon on the outside, which we can all hear in our head now and know that that's the sound of the Millennium Falcon. But anyway, the key scene there, I think, is Han uh, expressing skepticism uh, about the Force. Because up to this point, we were, from Luke's point of view, this old guy tells us about the Force. Now this old guy is going to show us how to do it. We've seen this old guy do effectively magic with these and other droids you're looking for and stuff. And we get on the ship, and he's well, doing this practice. Seen, and we've and seen Han Vader goes, do it too. Yeah, and Han goes, listen, kid, I've seen a lot of strange things. You know, he goes through that whole speech about it. He's never seen anything that he thinks is some, some magical force controlling everything. No force defines his destiny. You know, it, it, because if we didn't have that, not so much in this movie, but in the later movies, you wouldn't have any sort of doubt. But just like, oh, the force, and, I, and Luke believes it, and so I believe it. And it shows that there's skepticism, that it's not, you know... That, that there's some some leap of faith required for him to believe this is even possible. Even though we live in a world with spaceships and everything, this crazy idea of the Force is still a little bit wacky. Um, I, I think that was the key uh, plot point dropped in, in the uh, interior of the Millennium Falcon scene at that point you, in the movie. You know, not only does um, Darth Vader use the Force to choke somebody to death, he also uses it to get coffee. In the Delicious comic? Coffee. Yeah, well, yeah, he does, he does use the word faith there, too. He finds his lack of faith disturbing. Why do you need to have faith? I'm choking you, dude. You don't have to believe. Believe that. <laughs> I believe it. Let me go. Greg, can you explain? Can you explain the Darth Vader coffee thing? By the way, for those who don't know, because this is one of my favorite things about about the original Star Wars. In the comic version, there's the conference room scene where they're discussing how the plans got away and who's to blame and your ancient religion, blah, blah, blah. And it, just as, as the people are talking uh, around the table, uh, Vader floats over a styrofoam cup of coffee. And whoa, then whoa, he's whoa, just... Whoa. Yes. How does he drink it? Yes! <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Using the force? <laughs> and then he just... He, he's holding it for the rest of the scene, including while he's choking the guy. <laughs> okay. and it, the it, old, it the like, only thing that would have been awesome about that is if while choking the guy, he summons a cup of coffee and then throws it in his face and scalds him. <laughs> That would be hilarious. He should, have, he should have been quietly sipping through his helmet while choking the guy. That's the dark side, man. Uh, coffee is for chokers. <laughs> yeah, Vader doesn't put any cream in his coffee, by the way. He likes <laughs> he, it black. He takes it black. Just like he likes I it. I like my coffee like my, like my evil Sith Like my overlords. Sith Lords. <laughs> so we're going to take a pause right here because uh, the podcast gods uh, forced us to not do a two-hour podcast. So we're going to cut this into two pieces. Stay tuned for the next installment where we will continue talking about star wars uh until then i want to thank my guests for uh taking us up to the halfway point john syracusa thank you you're very welcome dan morin thank you may the force be with you <laughs> always scott mcnulty thank you for being here for half of it i hope you come back for the second half uh, i have a bad feeling about this <laughs> <laughs> and and greg noss thank you thank you jason uh, he feels like it sounds like a beaten man, but he'll be back for more in our next installment. And until then, this is Jason Snell. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time with more Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs>